0: The Impro Film Club Podcast Richard West,
1: finding out about film and improvisation
0: Welcome to episode 3 of the Impro Film Club Podcast In this episode, I've been speaking to the director, Mariam Gormatig. Mariam has made a film called Before Summer Ends, which I saw at the London Film Festival at the end of 2017. Also joining us in the conversation is Hossein Rad, who is one of the three protagonists in the film. The film's classified by the film festival as a documentary, but I don't really think that describes it very well. The three friends are friends in real life. They are not professional actors, but they are acting, Uh, they know that the camera is on them. And so you get a fascinating example of how an improvised structure can be used to make a feature length story like this work. The conversation took place in French and has been translated and is spoken by actors. I started by asking Hussein how he and his friends had first met Mariam
2: We met Mariam in a cafe one night in Paris. We were with some friends. We had met in this cafe purely by chance. We chose a cafe and later we learned that it was the place where the Surrealists used to hang out at the end of the 19th century.
3: And
1: indeed it was such a surrealist encounter. It was a snowy evening and Paris was completely paralysed and on top of that there was a gas leak from a gas works not far from Paris so it smelled of gas and well I chanced upon these three guys who were speaking Persian which is a language I was very interested in and that I was beginning to learn at the time. So that's how it happened. We hit it off instantly and this is how it all started.
3: So you're not an actor, Hussein. No, I'm not an actor. And Mariam, did you talk to them about the film at the beginning?
1: Not at all, no. Actually, I met them and then we became friends and saw each other several times before I even had the idea of bringing a camera. And when I did, it wasn't even so I could make a film. It was above all in order to document their lives, to learn more about this generation of Iranians, because I am Iranian myself, but I grew up in Europe, so Iran was a country I knew nothing about. And I think they were altogether welcoming to my filming presence with the camera.
3: And what did you expect to find with the camera?
1: Actually, simply using a camera in the middle of a conversation between friends or between people who don't know each other so well will automatically change things somewhat. Some things happened or some things were said because the camera was there. I think if you have a group of friends, three male friends, some things will never be said because, well, you know each other and you don't need to say this kind of thing. But when someone else is there with their camera and asks questions, then for, for me, what was interesting was to hear Arash tell Hussain, oh, this is the first time I've heard you tell me this, or or stuff like that. So the camera also allows certain secrets to come out in the open, or more personal things.
2: What secrets? Hussein? No, not so much secrets. It's more about understanding that when you're on the soapbox, or behind a microphone, you don't say the same things. By being in front of the camera, we were also given a platform, and the possibility to express ourselves on certain matters, and thus we all came together for a shared purpose. Whereas when you meet friends, you hang out and talk about different things, but there is no purpose. And here, there was really this purpose, which was to make a film, to talk about ourselves, to talk about Iran, to talk about France. This feeling of being far from the place where we grew up, where we used to live.
3: When exactly did you become aware of this purpose?
1: Not straight away. No,
2: not at the start. Really, we met, we became friends, and before we started planning anything, Marion would talk to me. So I was aware of all the projects she was working on. So we also talked one by one to our friends, you know, to tell them, well, do you mind if... One friend, for instance, he was bothered by the idea. So every time we met and brought the camera, we told him there would be a camera so that he wouldn't come. But the project itself, it evolved a lot from what it was in the beginning.
1: And actually, we made a first trip which was entirely filmed to the south of Italy, It was the first idea for the film, the three of them. It was quite similar. It was also about meeting girls, etc. There was this buddy movie vibe of lads traveling together, foreign lads traveling, but it was not as clear as for the second trip where ultimately the film is more centered around identity. And I feel that we gradually realized this, that the subject imposed itself on us because I had a genuine interest in Iran and in my Iranian culture, which I was unfamiliar with. And they were in the process of settling in France. Or not, because Arash didn't like France, or at least hadn't managed to find his place there. So it came to us little by little, because of all these questions which kept surfacing. And then the idea of helping our friend find love so he won't leave. This came from Hussein, who had just had this very experience. Shortly before he was meant to go back to Iran, he met a woman, he fell in love, and so he stayed. So for me, this plot element was fantastic, as it helped build a bit of narrative. But I had no script, no dramatic structure, no written dialogue. I knew how they talked, how they would approach certain topics, but nothing was set on paper.
2: As for me, going back to the question of Mariam's place behind the camera, this really took shape once I said that I was leaving. The question of the relationship, that is to say of Mariam's presence, of the part she was supposed to play in the film and all that, this issue was settled once we understood that we were going to travel in order to make a film. From that moment on, we became actors, she became the director. And our relationship was that between actor and their director.
1: Yeah, that's how it happened.
2: Because before this, it was very complicated. Say we were together, we had just had dinner, and then we were not supposed to talk to Mariam. She was always behind her camera, and we were not supposed to look at her. Sometimes we wanted to talk, we wanted her to take part in the conversation. Sometimes we were eating, she was filming, so it was a bit annoying. But this unsettling relationship was modified as soon as we left for two, three weeks to make the film. From that moment on, we were in front of the camera, she was behind, and there was no relationship between us. I mean, all of our interactions went through the camera and we ignored her.
3: And uh, have you become an actor a bit in the process? Hmm, I don't
2: know, it's a very difficult question because, for instance, I've noticed that actors, professional ones, they don't really like people like me Because, to put it like this, I have no claim to being an actor or aiming to become an actor. I mean, I make a living from something else. And really, it was this project in particular which sparked our interest. So no, I'm not an actor, but I acted in a film.
1: But it's true that the question of the documentary actor is an important one because there are more and more documentaries in which the protagonists appropriate the whole apparatus and play with it, and where the main characters become actual performers in a documentary, which underlines the importance of casting for a documentary much more than for fiction. Because in fiction, you hire an actor, and if they can't do it, you replace them with another one, and it won't be exactly the same, but they all have acting techniques. I mean, two great actresses could more or less play the same part or exchange parts. While in a documentary, no, you have to find the right person because it is this particular person that you're going to showcase. So casting is paramount in a documentary. But what is nevertheless surprising is that they are still not considered actors. Here at the festival, we're invited, and Hussain is not invited as an actor, but as the protagonist of a documentary film. Right. Well, from my point of view, we did work, which was I directed actors to a certain point, and they were acting. But you see, they're still real people. So they are not very well looked upon in actors' circles, and there are more and more films like this, with non-professional actors or documentary protagonists.
3: So this film combines documentary and fiction?
1: More or less, yes. In fact, I'd say it was more of a trans-genre film. It isn't documentary or fiction, it actually questions the distinction. It talks about boundaries or abolishes boundaries, and maybe it is also a way to negotiate between the two genres, and to say that it really matters little whether it is documentary or fiction, or a bit of both, or neither. It is what Americans call a hybrid movie, and I find this term quite useful. In fact, it's quite appropriate for this film. I didn't think at all before making the film, is it fiction, is it documentary? I didn't consider this question and it held no interest for me because I knew the characters well, I knew their lives and I wanted to tell their stories in images. But I don't even think we should still be asking such questions because they're outdated. It's a pity that we are so rigid on this fiction-documentary split because whatever you do, once you place a camera in any context, reality will be somewhat altered. So cinema verite for me cannot exist. And on the other hand, a film with a certain narrative structure can uncover things that are profoundly true. So when some criticise my film from the perspective of unadulterated documentary, I find this irrelevant because even when you watch the very first documentary films, the Lumiere brothers or Nanook of the North, etc, it's already fiction, so I think such questions are pointless.
3: When you began, how did you plan to set out the story?
1: So the first scene is very much an explanatory scene which allows us to get rid of all the questions of why are they there, what are they going to do, what is at stake. Because you always need at least some semblance of a plot for a film. But the stakes are minimal, it's just one friend who wants to leave and the two others who are trying to make him stay by going on a trip across France. It's not much of a plot in truth. So the first sequence, these are the only two shots which were staged. I had a very clear idea of the dialogue, which had to be included at all costs. The central subject of the film had to be made clear in one minute. And then everything else we compose with what we've got at hand.
3: So how are the opening shots filmed?
1: Okay, so Arash is a very heavy person and he cannot move much. So in such confined surroundings, in such a small room, Even when he sits on a bed, he's not comfortable, he has a certain weight. So he sat on the floor, quite naturally, indeed all Iranians love sitting on the floor. So he sat on the floor and his two friends helped him, of course they are much nimbler. And it was funny that Arash, who was supposed to leave, is completely static and apathetic, and his two friends who are trying to make him stay, who have decided to take root here, they keep moving and are unable to sit still. So it is... There is already an interesting relationship to show between the three. And furthermore, it reveals something about the character, who is a bit depressed. He is, we can see he's not doing well. He's not very happy.
3: But could you describe how you directed it? So actually, Mariam's
2: notable intervention was that she filmed from that specific angle. I mean, this scene in particular was just improvisation on our part. And...
1: You're talking about the second shot. So actually, there is the opening shot. Oh in which Arash is on the floor, and the point is to let the viewers know that someone is about to go on a trip. It allowed us to say the lines, and the second scene, after the nap they took during the shooting, this is one hour of improvisation. Both of them were on the bed, he was in front of them, and I just told them, the idea for this shot is to try and persuade Arash to join you on a trip, that's all. But from this prompt, they ended up talking for an hour. And then we selected an extract, which seemed interesting. So editing plays an essential part, seeing that it's all improvised or documentary or whatever else you might call it. From a one hour discussion, you have to choose that one small moment. And this is the hardest part. It was really all the editing work. And the editing lasted for 12 weeks, 12 intense weeks, because sometimes we had lots and lots of debates.
3: But isn't there a cut in the scene? Was it all done in one take?
1: The first shot is a long take and the second shot is split in two by the view from the window because in one hour there were only two scenes which we found interesting so so we introduced this cutaway shot of the window to be able to cut it It's actually the only cutaway shot in the entire film. There is no other cutaway shot because I really don't like them at all. I would like to be able to film everything in long takes, very economically. But it's more difficult. It is much more difficult. And it's also true that cutaway shots draw you out of the narrative. So this is the only cutaway because it is the only scene which was very staged. And we needed it in order to get rid of the issue of what is this film about once and for all and to be able to simply begin the journey from then on.
3: But in the story, there are some scenes with passers-by in the street. For instance, the waitress in the cafe. Who was she?
1: Just a waitress. And actually, it was funny because Ashkan was there talking to her and I came, set up my camera, and she didn't ask anything and nobody asked her anything.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe she doesn't even know she's part of a film.
1: She actually has no idea she is part of the film. So, well, it's... As a documentary maker, you have to be a bit cheeky, just show up and push yourself, and the camera is not too big.
3: But is it really a, a professional camera?
1: Yes, it's on a monopod, I don't have a tripod. So this makes the camera much easier to move around. And aside from that, I only had my small headphones, a tiny microphone on top of it, and that's it. And the guys had their wireless mics, and I had a bag on the side with all my stuff and the receivers. Whereas if you have a boom operator, you're done for. You're gonna have people staring directly into the camera, waving at the camera, this kind of stuff. I think that people today are so used to still cameras, which also film and mobile phones, they're less taken aback when they see a film camera. It's not as frightening for for passers-by. And in fact, at the village fair, there are tons of people in the shot and nobody stared at the camera.
3: How did you take the decisions about what are we doing tomorrow?
1: Well, it was mostly the places we visited which guided us. Because we were travelling from Paris towards the south, we had an itinerary. What I really had in mind was the topics we had to cover, something like... I'd like us to talk about this or that. There was, of course, the meeting with the girls. This was arranged in the South after five days of shooting. So this was completely planned in advance. I had also planned the 15th of August Feast of the Assumption. I don't know if you celebrate it in England. I think it's more in Catholic countries. It's a celebration which has now become completely secular, but which is still very important in the small villages of France. When I was a child, it was exactly the same as now, the same floats, the same bumper cars, the same attractions, nothing's changed. And I thought how funny it would be to throw three Iranians into the middle of a typical 15th of August French funfair. So I then looked up on the internet the French villages which had the best fairs of the 15th of August. And I saw that there was one village which even had organized a beauty pageant, Miss Nouradable. So, well, I absolutely wanted us to go there. And this led to a nice scene where they're looking for a girl and there are these girls passing on the floats. So one of our objectives was to go to this fair, but we didn't know what to expect. We had no idea if we were going to meet any people at all.
3: Did you have any problems with people asking you to stop filming or anything like that?
1: No, nope, not at all. We never had this kind of problem. On the contrary, people were quite interested in our project. For instance, in this village, Noratable, Table, where people were extremely welcoming. At some point, two young guys asked us for cigarettes, and finally we spent almost two or three hours talking to them in a cafe. I filmed everything. It was, well, in the end, I didn't do anything with this conversation. I mean, I edited it and removed it during the final editing because... Well, I took up too much space and it led us in a different direction. But it was very interesting. It revealed a lot about today's youth in rural France. You could feel these characters were quite tense because these days you get a lot of nationalism. So sometimes it was a bit disturbing. And I thought, well, this is interesting. Why not talk about this, too? I mean, talk about differences and all that. And then in the end, I decided it wasn't well, it didn't lead anywhere. But anyway, the meeting was rewarding for us and for them. And we were all very interested in it. And I know that the film was shown in the village and everyone went to see it. So after all, that's that's a good sign. So we didn't we didn't encounter any hostility. I think it's also because the guys themselves are quite intriguing.
2: And I must add, it's true that the camera is small and people are always seeing cameras filming everywhere. So nobody cares about a camera filming three guys who don't even look like actors, who are just there drinking, talking, speaking a language nobody understands. But us, we even felt sometimes damn nobody says anything what should we do we actually wanted people to be just a bit more startled to get some reactions but well people couldn't care less they went on with their lives
3: as if there was nothing going on even in the scene with the people who were swimming
1: yeah they didn't even notice us it's funny it's true that certain documentary filmmakers have this quality of knowing how to be completely unobtrusive of becoming invisible I believe this is one of the qualities I developed over years and years of experience. I made a film about my family and it was quite funny because when they saw it, they had completely forgotten that I'd been there filming them. For them, I was just a family member, while in fact, I was there all the time with my camera asking loads of questions. So yes, I think there are people who know how to be very self-effacing and I'm probably one of
3: them. When you're directing a scene, do you say anything? Do you step in?
1: Not that much, I don't really interfere, no.
3: You interfere?
2: You don't intervene that much during a scene. Instead, what she did was to suggest conversation topics. For instance, we'd be in the car and then, Arash, would you like to talk about your military service now?
1: No, I would ask you to ask Arash about it. That's how it was.
2: OK, but she didn't do it all the time. For instance, in this scene with the waitress, we went there just to have a meal, honestly. And it's funny because this place, it's a village, a very old village in the south of France. And there we were in the main square, really. And only rarely would she say, go sit there. Or look this way
1: I think we had good chemistry they knew where to stand quite naturally I didn't spend hours composing the frame in fact this was done quite quickly
3: there are some small scenes with the the little lights in their car
1: yes they're playing with them because you know I didn't have any lighting my lighting budget was 10 euros spent in a shop for camping equipment they have these small lights which you can use while camping and what was nice was that they were playing with them and there's this little light motif with these lamps But these questions about my interventions is funny because they would step in as well same as i did maybe i was a bit more of an interventionist for instance it's true that when the girls are in the car with the three guys all crammed in i started the conversation about the farts the different kind of farts because i knew it would be funny but then it went on for 10 minutes, so I had ideas like that here and there. But sometimes they propose things too. Trying on the veil, that was one of the girls' ideas. All the things that happened during the fair, these were all the girls' ideas. They absolutely wanted to have a go at these games, so I just followed them, and it ended up being an amazing scene because they're playing these strongman games, and then it's really the boys and the girls. There's something very teenage about it all, and this suggestion in particular came from them.
3: Do you think that you had the same overall vision of the film as them?
1: I don't know. I don't think... Do we perceive the film the same way? Do we agree on what it's about? It's hard to tell.
3: It's really hard to tell, but I think our visions weren't that different. What was it for you? What's, what's the main idea?
2: For me, first of all, it's about three people who are travelling in France and all the other themes implied by this.
3: So what, what are these themes?
2: So there is this specific state of mind when travelling, which is also important. There's this excitement, and we keep talking about Iran because we miss it. And we talk about France because we find it intriguing because it raises all sorts of questions. I mean, we are in France, but we are elsewhere. So the whole part I played for me was mostly about this.
1: Yes, this is how you all perceived it. For me, it was more a film about three friends, three male friends. What I found interesting was that I was a woman filming three guys, And this is what spiked my interest. As a woman, you never get the chance to take part in a stag party, for instance. So finding myself catapulted amidst a group of young men in their private lives was a golden opportunity. And I liked their intimacy for several reasons, because I found them very affectionate, which is already something surprising, because male friendship is seen as being rougher, coarser, while in fact they were very gentle and very tender. Well, on the other hand, the girls we meet during the trip, they're rockers, they're real thugs, so their encounter was also interesting for me to film. Aside from all the questions about identity, exile and so on, there was also, what is male friendship?
3: How did you arrive at your way of framing the shots?
1: My working style kind of imposed itself because the camera was very heavy for me, because I don't have that much strength. So I was forced to work with a monopod, so that makes everything more stable and fixed. Aside from that, the shots were easy to frame because there are three characters, so you have three opposing forces, with Arash who takes up a lot of space. Similarly, well, maybe this is a bit rigid, but I love frontal shots centered on the characters. I don't like filming at an angle from above or from below, all this shot counter shot stuff. I don't much care for it. When you're talking to someone and you're facing them, you don't have a shoulder in your field of vision or when you're in a car with your friends, you're never on the bonnet looking at them from the outside. This has no real equivalent. I might like this kind of shot in films made by others, which I watch without questioning, but for me they're problematic because I don't know where the filmmaker is. I don't know where the person who's watching is placed. So I'm in the car with them, in the showers with them, in the tent with them. The camera is where I am, it cannot be anywhere else. It's quite self-explanatory and it's hard to explain why one works like this. Or how you set up a frame because it's also quite intuitive i never spend an hour framing a shot i do it and then if i like it i like it and if i don't i won't even shoot
3: and will she make a sign to you her saying to move like this or
2: like that gradually you start understanding how it works so so quite early on you know that whatever you say or do might be filmed i mean at first there were moments oh but you're filming this stopped happening quite quickly that is to say We knew that even if it was very banal for us, I don't know, scratching our head or one of us was taking a nap, even then we had to be aware that we could potentially be filmed. Most of the time, Mariam would adapt to us. I mean, most of the film takes place in a car after all.
1: And we didn't shoot any scenes in which we're walking. At the very beginning, there were some scenes when I was filming them while they were shopping that were edited out. They wouldn't stop moving all the time and they kept turning their backs to the camera. So I'd end up with this huge back. So I told them this won't do, come on. And then little by little I think they began to understand my aesthetic choices, something quite static, so they stopped moving around all the time.
2: It's true, eventually the film became static. You never see us going anywhere. We are always sitting down and preparing the food, or talking nonsense.
1: No, in the village fair there's some movement you were wondering about. It was very hard for me to follow them, first of all because they're tall, they're all six foot three and I'm short so I had to hold the camera high. And then it was also quite complicated so Sometimes I get angry, I tell them it wasn't working, stop moving.
2: You have to be aware that she's filming over there. Maybe right now she can't hear us, but she can see us. So we waited, we checked how everything was going, if we could move or not. But this was easy to learn. Actually, we- I
1: was, for me, there was so much annoyance. There are so many moments when you get quite exasperated while filming. You're basically angry all the time because there's never anything that happens the way you want it to.
2: Maybe not angry, but tense
1: tense because you are always focused on the sound and the image because you have to handle a lot of things at once and then I would think damn it he could have just turned like this nothing is ever perfect the way I'd like it and that's all great because this is what makes films interesting after all the fact that they aren't perfect all the time you're constantly analyzing thinking how am I gonna edit this you spend so much time just at least I'm like this I spend a lot of time getting angry in my mind telling myself it's no good it's not working it's not easy
3: did you watch the footage during the trip?
1: No, I watched everything at the end when we came back from the trip.
3: Did you, I was saying, see it on the camera screen? No, not on the camera.
2: During the first trip we made, we were a bit like, come on, let us see, but...
3: We didn't
1: have the time. We arrived in the evening around midnight and then we had to back up the footage until two in the morning to empty the memory cards. In the morning, the following day we had to get up, strike the tent, leave. We didn't even have time to watch anything.
3: Hossein, did you have any idea what the whole story would be and the part you'd play in it? No, not at all. Did you know how the story would end?
2: No. Well, chronologically speaking, it was the same.
1: The story advanced in the same order as it was shot.
2: It was shot in the same order But in a way, we also had this feeling that the journey was reaching its end. I mean, it was already the end of the summer. And in the south of France, from the 15th of August to the 1st of September, it's worse than the end of the summer. It's more like the end of the world. When I lived in the south of France, this time of the year was really sad because restaurants, which used to open until three in the morning and nightclubs and all that, all of a sudden, on the 16th of August, they take a nosedive. So we had all these feelings which were bringing us towards an end anyway. But I didn't know, for instance, that the scene where I sing about the moon is the shot. Later, Mariam told me I really had this sequence, this shot in mind for the end of the film.
1: But even me, I've thought about it, but I didn't know. I wasn't absolutely convinced that this was going to be the last scene of the film. I didn't know what was going to happen either, I was just making this film, I didn't really have any expectations because there was no funding from the National Film Board or other such institutions. So I wasn't very worried, I thought if we make a feature film that's great, if we end up with just a short, why not? I wasn't sure of what the end result would be, and even after we returned from the trip I wasn't sure I was going to be able to make a film from the footage, I mean, what story can I possibly tell with this? I can't make head or tail of it, it keeps jumping from one thing to another and then Even the girls, it was a wild gamble. I put them all together in the car to see what would happen, they didn't know each other, it could have been a complete fiasco, it could have been absolutely rubbish. And actually, there is a lot of unusable and pointless footage, really boring conversations. But all of a sudden beautiful things might emerge and actually you can build the story with the omissions. you see, they were in the cafe, the meeting was completely dull, it was really, so what do you do, I'm a student. Really, you put this kind of thing in a film, people fall asleep instantly. So what should we do with this? We cut everything and there you go. The girls are already in the car in the next shot. It's so much more fun, you know, they're talking about two girls and then two seconds later they're already in the car. So you develop the story with these omissions by removing what doesn't work. And finally, there's a lot of adjusting because there is no script, there is no narrative development. This is also one of the joys of documentary filmmaking.
2: And in relation to our part in the film, I'm going to refer a bit to real life. I didn't know if my character was going to be really talkative or not. Whereas in reality, I am really talkative and I became even more aware of it when I saw the film. But Arash, for instance, is a very talkative character in real life. While in the film, he is silent. He doesn't talk much at all. Except that while we were filming, throughout the shooting, he talks so much. And honestly, he is so slow when he speaks and often so annoying. (laughs) But actually, they really managed to... I mean, the girls, Mariam and her editor, they really managed to create this character... Our place in all this, you can't be sure. We couldn't really anticipate. I played some music in the film, for instance, but she could take what she wanted out of it. 70 hours of rushes were made during the two weeks of shooting and all this had to be edited down to one hour 20. So there were aspects of each character's personality which will be done away with. And these are characters, not people.
1: And then there are other aspects which come out which you might not have been aware of. For instance, Ashkan was a bit upset when he found out that I'd filmed that moment with Charlotte. He told me, oh, I didn't know you'd filmed this moment. It was a very stealthy scene. I didn't even have the mics because she'd just finished her concert, so the mics were on the guitar. So it was just the camera mic, so it was really improvised. But it turned out to be a great scene. It really shows this guy making a huge blunder and offending the girl and so on. So it really says something about their awkwardness, actually. In the film this awkwardness comes across as something quite beautiful, while of course for him as a person this was a bit embarrassing. And it's normal, in documentaries you steal a bit from people's lives too, you create something on their backs. But what I find really nice is that one of my cousins, who's an actress, told me, oh in your film there's this exceptional level of attentiveness, the actors genuinely listen to each other. And it's true, First of all, because they aren't real actors, so when they tell each other something, it's just friends talking and listening to each other. And then she told me, because I'm an actress, I have trouble paying attention in this way because I'm always thinking of my next line. So you see, from this point of view, I find working with non-actors very interesting because they are, they are truly genuine.
3: And did it gradually become easier for you, Hussein, to be an actor? Did you learn some tricks of the trade? You end up finding some tricks, I already had some experience with the camera before doing this
2: film. I'd worked more or less uh, a year as a presenter for a TV channel. So I was used to talking in front of the camera, even talking to the camera. And that's really strange. But yes, in this kind of job, you gradually find tricks for being more relaxed. Actually, I had a music teacher who once told me something that rings true. What he told me was art is being able to let yourself go. Rigidity kills art. And I saw this in music and then I saw the same thing here. Another way of putting it. The more you want to achieve something, the tenser you are, the worse the actual result. You simply have to let go, to let another kind of energy emerge from yourself. And I think this is truly what leads to great art.
1: This is so true. I did have some sort of structure and I did think, so after this, at this moment, they will meet this person. There is a scene that was completely edited out where they meet a friend. And I asked myself, how are we going to make the audience understand that they're meeting this friend by chance? So we had this scene where the friend calls them and really it was such an unfortunate scene. I asked them to do 20 takes, it wasn't working because I kept asking them to say very specific things and we did it 150 times and they were exhausted, it wasn't their job and it was very contrived. Once or twice during the trip I really wanted to tell a story in a very precise manner and I was really stuck on a particular idea from the script and we always drop these scenes during editing because they're actually worthless. There's no point. You don't need to explain every single thing. The viewer is intelligent enough to join the dots in the story when there's a hole in the narrative. And in fact, I really like Kirastami's films, for instance, because he leaves enough space for us, the viewers, to make up stories, tell half of his story by ourselves, project ourselves into the film. So I was trying to make something I don't even like to see in films, which is taking the viewer by the hand and explaining to them what they're gonna see next. It's very artificial. So yeah, you were talking about this rigidity and that when you finally let go, much better things start happening. It was so surprising in their meeting with the girls, I absolutely wanted them to just to talk. And so I prepared all these conversation topics and so on. And then all of this was just cut out. And what remains is what happened between the conversations. And finally, what's nice in life are these real moments. So this also teaches us to stay focused on what really matters. And from this point of view, our editor, she did an excellent job. It was her who noticed that completely trivial scenes like the nap actually revealed friendship. She would say, but this, this is what friendship is about. There's no need to state it explicitly. Here we have three guys who are sleeping on top of each other, it's wonderful. So it's about allowing something to emerge from the real. There are so many wonderful things that surround us. Why complicate things by writing dialogue?
3: And you can actually say this about the film, that it's very simple.
1: I hadn't thought about it this way. It's true.
3: In every scene, it's, it's just one thing.
1: Yes, it's true. There is, We are always fully present in each moment. Nothing sends us elsewhere or makes us wonder what will happen next. So it's a film about presence and... But I think this is the joy of documentary, making each thing significant and interesting. The Fifteenth of August feast was very difficult to edit because each shot was, in itself, quite charming, but the editor kept telling me, Be careful, don't forget that the story we're telling is the story about these three young men. And I was so tempted to all of a sudden I wanted to branch out into this village fair story because I found this fair fascinating. Every single shot could have been a short film in itself, so it's 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 really difficult, in fact, to make choices afterwards to tell yourself, damn, what are we going to throw away? What should we keep? That's how it is.
3: And now that you've found a way to make a film, could you make others in the same manner?
1: I'd love to. I would love to be able
3: to. what, What have you learnt that you could use in future?
1: Above all, I've unlearned things. Lots of things that you're taught in film school which are useless from my point of view which gave me a lot of trouble in life because I developed an inferiority complex about not being able to tell a story because you were taught that there is only one correct way to tell a story, whereas in truth it's the stories themselves which reach towards us because we are made of stories. We start telling stories when we're children and narrative is something which is completely intuitive but when someone tells you, teaches you how to write a script and then this thing about the white page, open quotation mark interior, day shot, all that for me this is simply an aberration, this is not cinema. And then I had this serious complex about not being able to write. So I spent years trying to write a script and nothing came out, it was a total failure. And all this time, there were these characters just before my eyes, so much more real, so much more interesting than any fictional character I could have imagined. So unbelievable that Arash is a character you couldn't make up. And he doesn't even say anything, he almost doesn't speak in the film, but he's there, he's the main character. And it's very surprising because, in fact, he's the one who's done the least amount of work. So anyway, all this is meant to say that you have to create something with what is real. Seize reality, because reality is full of situations. For the past four years, I've been filming the view from my window. I have My window faces the Père Lachaise cemetery, and so many unbelievable things happen there. So you see, this is what's essential, just to tell a story, because... People are amazing, and life is amazing, and it's more surprising than fiction. And if you wrote in your script that some guy gained weight in order to avoid conscription, the producer would tell you, but this is, this is bullshit, it's completely implausible. Or when they're trying to chat up a waitress and they open a poetry book, if I'd written this in the script, the producers would have said, what is this thing? And no, now this scene is in the film, and maybe they look like idiots, but in any case, it's true, and it's funny, and so... I like it, it's, it tells you something about their culture, it tells it's some guys who want to chat up girls, it shows that they're also poets, it reveals a lot about Iran, and then the poems are beautiful too, so that's that. So I hope I can keep working with as much freedom as I did here.
3: Okay, uh, this is a nice way to end the interview, so thanks very much. Thank, Thank you. you.
0: Merci beaucoup. Merci. Merci. Ah. Thank you again to Mariam and Hossein for that conversation. Again, I recommend the film Before Summer Ends if you get the chance to see it. It shows what a variety of things are encompassed by the category Improvised Film. Thank you also to Nora Labo who transcribed and did an excellent job in the translation of uh, the transcript of our conversation and also to Josephine Start, who voiced Mariam's part, and Ken Burke, who voiced Hussain's part in that conversation, did such a good job of recreating what the original conversation was like. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it, and thank you for listening.